Hello once again, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody else in between. Uh, thank you for joining me here at um, Invisible London. Um, following on from our most uh, recent episode, uh, which I recorded yesterday, but of course you may well have um, listened to at any time uh, <laughs> in the past, um, you'll be very pleased to know that I will not be recording again outside after um, super producer Lisa, um, who's also my beautiful wife, um, uh, recommended that, uh, yeah, well, I, I never, ever do that again. Uh, and so you'll be pleased to know we won't be interrupted by uh, pigeons or cars or barking dogs, uh, screaming babies, uh, but we still might be uh, interrupted by the cats because they uh, hate the sign of a shut door. So uh, at any minute, uh, Edward, Annie or Betty might come and say hello. Uh, so you'll have to excuse me uh, if they do turn up because I don't know how to edit podcasts. Uh, and so everything uh, everything stays in. Uh, okay, so um, what we're going to be doing uh, this episode is we're going to be carrying on with um, the story The Great God Pan uh, by Arthur Macken. Um, we had part one yesterday. Uh, today, because they're quite short little chapters, we'll be doing parts two and three, where we finally end up in the streets of Victorian London. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so, with the first part of The Great God Pan, uh, we were introduced to the, uh, the mad scientist Dr. Raymond and his experiments on the young girl Mary where the, uh, uh, they were unlocking the secrets uh, of the brain, hoping to um, help her see the paranormal world beyond the veil of the world that we live in, and uh, the, uh, the disastrous consequences of his, uh, his scientific experiments. This time, part two, uh, it's called Mr. Clark's Memoirs. Uh, where we follow Mr. Clark, who was witness to Raymond's uh, experiments. And then with uh, part three, uh, we move on into the city of London, um, where the story continues. So without any further ado, we have part two of The Great God Pan, Mr. Clark's Memoirs. Mr. Clark, the gentleman chosen by Dr. Raymond to witness the strange experiment of the god Pan, was a person in whose character caution and curiosity were oddly mingled. In his sober moments he thought of the unusual and eccentric with undisguised aversion, and yet, deep in his heart, there was a wide-eyed inquisitiveness with respect to all the more recondite and esoteric elements in the nature of men. The latter tendency had prevailed when he accepted Raymond's invitation, for though he considered uh, his, his considered judgment had always reputated the doctor's theories as the wildest nonsense, he secretly hugged a belief in fantasy and would have rejoiced to see that belief confirmed. The horrors that he witnessed in the dreary laboratory were, to a certain extent, salutary. He was conscious of being involved in an affair not altogether reputable and for many years afterwards he clung bravely to the commonplace and rejected all occasions of occult investigation. Indeed, on some homeopathic principle, he for some time attended the seances of distinguished mediums, hoping that the clumsy tricks of these gentlemen would make him altogether disgusted with mysticism of every kind. But the remedy, though caustic, was not efficacious. Clark knew that he still pined for the unseen, and little by little the old passion began to reassert itself, as the face of Mary, shuddering and convulsed with an unknown terror, faded slowly from his memory. Occupied all day, in pursuits both serious and lucrative, the temptation to relax in the evening was too great, especially in the winter months, when the fire cast a warm glow over his snug bachelor apartment, and a bottle of some choice claret stood ready by his elbow. His dinner digested, he would make a brief pretense of reading the evening paper, but the mere catalogue of news soon palled upon him, and Clark would find himself casting glances of warm desire in the direction of an old Japanese bureau, which stood at a distance from the hearth. 
Like a boy before a jam closet, for a few moments he would hover indecisive, but lust always prevailed, and Clark ended by drawing up his chair, lighting a candle, and sitting down before the bureau. Its pigeonholes and drawers teemed with documents on the most morbid subjects, and in the well reposed a large manuscript volume in which he had painfully entered the gems of his collection. Clark had a fine contempt for published literature. The most ghostly story ceased to interest him if it happened to be printed. His sole pleasure was in the reading, compiling and rearranging of what he called his memoirs to prove the existence of the devil. And engaged in this pursuit, the evening seemed to fly and the night appeared too short. On one particular evening... An ugly December night, black with fog and raw with frost, Clark hurried over his dinner and scarcely deigned to observe the customary ritual of taking up a paper and laying it down again. He paced two or three times up and down the room and opened the bureau, stood still a moment and sat down. He leaned back, absorbed in one of those dreams to which he was subject, and at length drew out his book and opened it at the last entry. There were three or four pages densely covered with Clark's round, set penmanship, and at the beginning he had written in a somewhat larger hand, the singular narrative told to me by my friend Dr. Phillips. He assures me that all the facts related herein are strictly and wholly true, but refuses to give either the surnames of the persons concerned or the place where these extraordinary events occurred. Mr. Clark began to read over the account for the tenth time, glancing now and then, now and then, at the pencil notes he had made when it was told to him by his friend. It was one of his humours to pride himself on a certain literary ability. He thought well of his style and took pains in arranging the circumstances in dramatic order. He read the following story. The persons concerned in this statement are Helen V, who, if she is still alive, must now be a woman of 23. Rachel M., since deceased, who was a year younger than the above, and Trevor W., an imbecile aged 18. These persons were at the period of the story inhabitants of a village on the borders of Wales, in a place of some importance in the time of the Roman occupation, but now a scattered hamlet of not more than 500 souls. It is situated on rising ground about six miles from the sea, and is sheltered by a large and picturesque forest. Some eleven years ago, Helen V. came to the village under rather peculiar circumstances. It is understood that she, being an orphan, was adopted in her infancy by a distant relative who brought her up in his own home until she was twelve years old. Thinking, however, that it would be better for the child to have playmates of her own age, he advertised in several local papers for a good home in a comfortable farmhouse for a girl of twelve, and this advertisement was answered by a Mr. R., a well-to-do farmer in the above-mentioned village. If references proving satisfactory, the gentleman sent his adopted daughter to Mr. R. with a letter in which he stipulated that the girl should have a room to herself and stated that her guardians need to be at no trouble in the matter of education as she was already sufficiently educated for the position in life which she would occupy. In fact, Mr. R. was given to understand that the girl be allowed to find her own occupations and to spend her time almost exactly as she liked. Mr. R. duly met her at the nearest station, a town seven miles away from his house, and seems to have remarked nothing extraordinary about the child, except that she was reticent as to her former life and her adopted father. She was, however, of a very different type from the inhabitants of the village. Her skin was a pale, clear olive, and her features were strongly marked and of a somewhat foreign character. She appears to have settled down easy enough into farmhouse life and became a favourite with the children, who sometimes went with her on her rambles in the forest, for this was her amusement. Mr R states that he has known her to go out by herself directly after their early breakfast and not return until after dusk, and that, feeling uneasy at a young girl being out alone for so many hours, he communicated with her adopted father, who replied in a brief note that Helen must be allowed to do as she chose. In the winter, when the forest paths, paths are impassable, she spent most of her time in her bedroom, where she slept alone, according to the instructions of her relative. It was on one of these expeditions to the forest that the first of the singular incidents which this girl is connected occurred, the date being about a year after her arrival at the village. 
the preceding winter had been remarkably severe, and snow drifting to a great depth, and the frost continuing for an unexampled period, and the summer following was as noteworthy for its extreme heat. On one of the hottest days of the year, this summer, Helen V. left the farmhouse for one of her long rambles in the forest, taking with her, as usual, some bread and meat for lunch. She was seen by some men in the fields making for the old Roman road, a green causeway which traverses the highest part of the wood, and they were astonished to observe that the girl had taken off her hat, although the heat of the sun was already tropical. As it happened, a labourer, Joseph W. by name, was working in the forest near the Roman road, and at twelve o'clock his little son, Trevor, brought the man his dinner of bread and cheese. After the meal, the boy, who was about seven years old at the time, left his father at work, and, as he said, went to look for flowers in the wood. And the man, who could hear him shouting with delight at his discoveries, felt no uneasiness at all. Suddenly, however, he was horrified at hearing the most dreadful screams, evidently the results of a great terror, proceeding from the direction in which his son had gone, and he hastily threw down his tools and ran to see what had happened. Tracing his path by the sound, he met the little boy, who was running headlong and was evidently terribly frightened, and on questioning him, the man elicited that after picking a posy of flowers, he had felt tired and lay down on the grass and fell asleep. He was suddenly awakened, as he stated, by a peculiar noise, a sort of singing, he called it, and on peeping through the branches, he saw Helen V. playing on the grass with a strange naked man, who he seemed unable to describe more fully. He said he felt dreadfully frightened and ran away crying for his father. Joseph W. proceeded in the direction indicated by his son, and there he found Helen V. sitting on the grass in the middle of a glade, or an open space left by charcoal burners. He angrily charged her with frightening his little boy, but she entirely denied the accusation and laughed at the child's story of a strange man, to which he himself did not attach much credence. Joseph W. came to the conclusion that the boy had woken up with a sudden fright as children sometimes do, but Trevor persisted in his story, and continued in such evident distress that at last his father took him home, hoping that his mother would be able to soothe him. For many weeks, however, the boy gave his parents much anxiety. He became nervous and strange in his manner, refusing to leave the cottage by himself, and constantly alarming the household by waking in the night with the cries of, The man in the wood! Quick, father, father! In the course of time, however, the impression seemed to have worn off, and about three months later he accompanied his father to the home of a gentleman in the neighbourhood, for whom Joseph W. occasionally did work. The man was shown into the study, and the little boy was left sitting in the hall. And a few minutes later, while the gentleman was giving W. his instructions, they were both horrified by the piercing shriek and the sound of a fall, and rushing out they found the child lying senseless on the floor his face contorted with terror. The doctor was immediately summoned, and after some examination, he pronounced the child to be suffering from uh, some kind of a fit, apparently produced by a sudden shock. The boy was taken to one of the bedrooms, and after some time recovered consciousness, but only to pass into a condition described by the medical, the medical man as one of violent hysteria. The doctor had the doctor exhibited a strong sedative, and in the course of two hours pronounced him fit to walk home. But in passing through the hall, the paroxysms of fright returned, and with additional violence. The father perceived that the child was pointing at some object, and heard the old cry, The man! It's the man in the wood! Looking in the direction indicated, saw a stone head of grotesque appearance, which had been built into the wall above one of the doors. It seems the owner of the house had recently made alterations in his premises, and on digging the foundations for some offices, the men had found a curious head, evidently of the Roman period, which had been placed in the manner described. The head is pronounced by the most experienced archaeologists of the district to be that of a fawn or a satyr. From whatever cause arising, this second shock seemed too severe for the boy Trevor, and at the present date he suffers from a weakness of intellect, but which gives little promise of amending. The matter caused a good deal of sensation at the time, and the girl Helen was closely questioned by Mr. R., but to no purpose, she steadfastly denying that she had frightened or in any way molested Trevor. 
The second event with which this girl's name is connected took place about six years ago, and is still of a more extraordinary character. At the beginning of the summer of 1882, Helen contacted the friendship of a peculiarly intimate character with Rachel M., the daughter of a prosperous farmer in the neighbourhood. This girl, who was a year younger than Helen, was considered by most people to be the prettier of the two, although Helen's features had to a great extent softened as she became older. The two girls, who were together on every available opportunity, presented a singular contrast, the one with her clear olive skin and almost Italian appearance, and the other of the proverbial red and white of our rural districts. It must be stated that the payments made to Mr R for the maintenance of Helen were known in the village for their excessive liberality, and the impression was uh, general that she would one day inherit a large sum of money from her relative. The parents of Rachel were therefore not adverse from their daughter's friendship with the girl, and even encouraged the intimacy, although now they, they bitterly regret having done so. Helen still retained her extraordinary fondness for the forest, and on several occasions Rachel accompanied her, the two friends setting out early in the morning and remaining in the wood until dusk. Once or twice after these excursions, Mrs M thought her daughter's manner rather peculiar. She seemed languid and dreamy, as if she had been uh, expressed different from herself, but these peculiarities seemed to have been thought too trifling for remark. One evening, however, after Rachel had come home, her mother heard a noise which sounded like suppressed weeping in the girl's room, and on going in found her lying, half undressed upon the bed, evidently in the greatest distress. As soon as she saw her mother, she exclaimed, Oh, mother, mother, why did you let me go into the forest with Helen? Mrs. M was astonished at so strange a question, and proceeded to make inquiries. Rachel told her a wild story. She said, Clark closed the book with a snap, and turned his chair towards the fire. When his friend sat one evening in that very chair and told his story, Clark had interrupted him at this point, and cut short the words in a paroxysm of horror. My God, he had exclaimed, think, think what you are saying. It's too incredible, too monstrous. Such things can never be in this quiet world, where men and women live and die and struggle and conquer or maybe fail and fall down under sorrow, sorrow and grieve and suffer strange fortunes for many a year. But not this, Phillips, no such thing as this. There must be some explanation, some way out of the terror. Why, man, if such a case were possible, our earth would be a nightmare. But Phillips has told his story to the end, concluding, Well, her flight remains a mystery to this day. She vanished in broad sunlight. They saw her walking in a meadow, and a few moments later she was not there. Clark tried to conceive the thing again, as he sat by the fire, and again his mind shuddered and shrank back appalled before the sight of such awful, unspeakable elements, enthroned, as it were, and triumphant in human flesh. Before him stretched the long, dim vista of the green causeway in the forest, as his friend had described it. He saw the swaying leaves and the quivering shadows on the grass. He saw the sunlight and the flowers. And far away, far, in the long distance, two figures moved towards him. One was Rachel, the other? Clark had tried his best to disbelieve it all, but at the end of the account he had written it in his book. He placed the inscription, And the devil was made incarnate, and was made man. Part 3. The City of Resurrections Herbert? Good God, is it possible? Yes, my my name's Herbert. I I think I know your face, but I don't remember your name. My memory is uh, very queer. Oh, you don't recollect Villiers of Wadham? Oh, so it is, so it is. I beg your pardon, Villiers. I didn't think I was begging of an old college friend. Oh, gosh, good night. Oh, my dear fellow, this haste is unnecessary. My rooms are close by. Why won't we go there just yet? Suppose we can walk up Shaftesbury Avenue a little way. But how in heaven's name have you come, th come to this pass, Herbert? Oh, it's a long story, Villiers, and a strange one too. But you can hear it if you like. Well, come along then. Take my arm. You don't seem very strong. 
The ill-assorted pair move slowly up Rupert Street, the one in the dirty, evil-looking rags, and the other attired in the regulation uniform of a man about town, trim, glossy, and eminently well-to-do. Thaliazard had emerged from his restaurant after an excellent dinner of many courses, assisted by the drinking a little flask of Chianti, and in that frame of mind, uh, which was with him almost chronic, had delayed a moment by the door, peering around in the dimly lit street in search of those mysterious incidents and persons which with the streets of London team in every quarter and every hour. Phileas prided himself as a practised explorer of such obscure mazes and byways of London life, and this unprofitable pursuit he displayed an assiduity which was worthy of more serious employment. Thus he stood by the lamppost, surveying the passers-by with undisguised curiosity, and with that gravity known only to the systematic diner. He had just enunciated his mind the formula, London has been called the City of Encounters, but it is more than that, it is the City of Resurrections when these reflections were suddenly interrupted by a piteous whine at his elbow and a deplorable appeal for arms. He looked around in some irritation, and with sudden shock found himself confronted with the embodied proof of his somewhat stilted fancies. There, close beside him, his face altered and disfigured by poverty and disgrace, his body, his body barely covered by greasy, ill-fitting rags, stood his old friend Charles Herbert, who had matriculated on the same day as himself and with whom he had been merry and wise for twelve revolving terms. Different, uh, uh, different upon this wreck of a man, with grief and dismay mingled with certain inquisitiveness as to what dreary chain of circumstances had dragged him down to such a doleful pass. Villiers felt together with compassion all the relish of the amateur in mysteries and congratulated himself on his leisurely speculations outside the restaurant. They walked on in silence for some time, and more than one passer-by stared in astonishment at the, uh, the unaccustomed spectacle of a well-dressed man and an unmistakable beggar hanging arm on arm, and observing this, Phileas led the way to an obscure street in Soho, and here he repeated his question. But how on earth has it happened, Herbert? I always understood you as succeed in an excellent position in Dorsetshire. Did your father disinherit you? Surely not. Oh, oh no, Villiers, I came into all the property of my poor father's death. He died a year after I left Oxford. He was a very good father to me, and I mourned his death sincerely enough. But you know what young men are. After a few months I came up to town and went a good deal into society. Of course I had excellent introductions, and I managed to enjoy myself very much in a harmless sort of way. I played a little, certainly, but never for heavy stakes, and the few bets I made on the races brought me in money. Only a few pounds, you know, but enough to pay for cigars and petty pleasures. It was in my second season that the tide turned. Of course, you must have heard of my marriage. Well, no, I'd never heard anything about it. Ah, oh, yes, Villiers, I got married. I met a girl, a girl of the most wonderful and strange beauty, at the house of some people who I knew. I cannot tell you her age, I never knew it, but so far as I can guess, I should think she must have been about 19 when I made her acquaintance. My friends had come to know her in Florence. She told them she was an orphan, the child of an English father and an Italian mother, and she charmed them as she charmed me. The first time I saw her was at an evening party. I was standing by the door talking to a friend, when suddenly, above the hum and babble of conversation, I heard a voice which seemed to thrill to my heart. She was singing an Italian song. I introduced to her that evening, and in three months I married her. Helen. Villiers, that woman, if I can call her a woman, corrupted my soul. The night of the wedding I found myself sitting in her bedroom in the hotel, listening to her talk. She was sitting up in bed, and I listened to her as she spoke with her beautiful voice, spoke of things which even now I would dare not whisper in the blackest night although I stood in the midst of a wilderness. You, Villiers, you may think you know life and London and what goes on day and night in this dreadful city. For all I can say, you may have heard the talk of the vilest things, but I tell you, you can have no conception of what I know. Not in your most fantastic, hideous dreams can you have imaged forth the faintest shadow of what I heard. 
and what I saw. Yes, I've seen things. I've seen the incredible, such horrors that even I myself sometimes stop in the middle of the street and ask whether it's possible for a man to behold such things and live. In a year, Villiers, I was a ruined man, in body and soul, body and soul. But your property, Herbert, you had land in Dorset. I sold it all, the fields, the woods, the dear old house, everything. And uh, what about the money? She, she took it all from me. Oh, and then she left you? Yes, she disappeared one night. I don't know where she went, but I'm sure if I saw her again it would kill me. The rest of my story is of no interest, sordid and misery. That's all. You may think, Phileas, that I've exaggerated and talked for effect, but I've not told you half. I could tell you certain things which would convince you, but you would never know a happy day again. You'd pass the rest of your life as I pass mine. A haunted man. A man who has seen hell. Phileas took the unfortunate man to his rooms and gave him a meal. Herbert could eat little and scarcely touch the glass of wine set before him. He sat moodily and silent by the fire and seemed relieved when Villiers sent him away with a small present of money. Oh, by the way, Herbert, said Villiers, as they parted at your door, what was your wife's name? You said Helen, I think. Helen what? Well, the name she passed under when I met her was Helen Vaughan, but what her real name was I can't say. I don't think she had a name, no. No, not in that sense. Only human beings have names, Villiers. I can't say any more. Goodbye. Yes, I will not fail to call if I see you in any way which, which you could help me. Good night. The man went out into the bitter night, and Villiers returned to his fireside. There was something about Herbert which shocked him inexpressibly. No, it wasn't his poor rags nor the marks which poverty had set upon his face, but rather an indefinite terror which hung about him like a mist. He had acknowledged that he himself was not devoid of blame. The woman, he had avowed, had corrupted him, body and soul, and Villiers felt like this man, once his friend, had been an actor in scenes evil beyond the power of words. His story needed no confirmation. He himself was the embodied proof of it. Phileas mused curiously over the story he had heard and wondered whether he had heard both the first and the last of it. No, he thought, certainly not the last, and probably only the beginning. A case like this is like a nest of Chinese boxes. You open one after the other and find a coin to workmanship in every box. Most likely poor Herbert is merely one of the outside boxes, and there are stranger ones to follow. Phileas could not take his mind away from Herbert and his story, which seemed to grow wilder as the night wore on. The fire seemed to burn low, and the chilly air of the morning crept into the room. Phileas got up with a glance over his shoulder, and, shivering slightly, went to bed. A few days later, he saw at his club a gentleman of his acquaintance named Austin, who was famous for his intimate knowledge of London life, Villiers, still full of his encounter in Soho and its consequences, thought Austin might possibly be able to shed some light on Herbert's history, and so, after some casual talk, he suddenly put the question. I say, do you happen to know anything of a man named Herbert? Charles Herbert? Austin turned round sharply and stared at Villiers with some astonishment. Charles Herbert? Weren't you in town three years ago? No? Well, then you would not have heard of the Paul Street case? It caused a good deal of sensation at the time. Oh, what was the case? Well, a gentleman, a man of very good position, was found dead, stark dead, in the area of a certain house in Paul Street, off Tottenham Court Road. Of course, the police did not make the discovery. If you had to be sitting up all night and have a light on in your window, the constable will ring the bell. But if you happen to be lying dead in somebody's area, you will be left quite alone. In this instance, as with many others, the alarm was raised by some kind of vagabond. Well, I didn't mean a common tramp or public house loafer, but a gentleman whose business or pleasure, or both, made him a spectator of the London streets at five o'clock in the morning. This individual was, as he said, going home, but it did not appear whence or whither, 
and had occasion to pass through Paul Street between 4 and 5 a.m. Something or other had caught his eye at number 20, he said, absurdly enough, that the house was the most unpleasant physiognomy he had ever observed, but at any rate he glanced down the area and was a good deal astonished to see a man lying on the stones, his limbs all huddled together and his face turned up. Our gentleman thought his face looked particularly ghastly, and so set off at a run in search of the nearest policeman. The constable at first inclined to treat the matter lightly, suspecting common drunkenness. However, he came, and after looking at the man's face, changed his tone quickly enough. The early bird who had picked up this fine worm was sent off for a doctor, and the policeman rang and knocked at the door until a slatternly servant girl came down, looking more than half asleep. The constable pointed out the contents of the area to the maid, who screamed loudly enough to wake up the whole street, but she knew nothing of the man. He had never seen him at the house, and so forth. Meanwhile, the original discoverer had come back with a medical man, and the next thing was to get into the area. The gate was open, so the whole quartet stumped down the steps. The doctor hardly needed a moment's examination, and he said the poor fellow had been dead for several hours, and it was then that the case began to get interesting. The dead man had not been robbed, and in one of his pockets were papers identifying him as, well, a man of good family and means, a favourite in society, and nobody's enemy as far as could be known. I won't give his name, Villiers, because it's nothing to do with the story, and because it's no good raking up these affairs about the dead when there are no relations living. The next curious point was that the medical men couldn't agree as to how he met his death. There were some slight bruises on his shoulders, but they were so slight it looked as if he had been pushed roughly out the kitchen door, and not thrown over railings from the street, or even dragged down the steps. But there were positively no other marks of violence about him, and certainly none that would account for his death. And when they came to the autopsy, there wasn't a trace of poison of any kind. Of course, the police wanted to know all about the people at number 20, and here again, and so I have heard from private sources, one or two other very curious points came out. It appears the occupants of the house were, uh, were a Mr. and Mrs. Charles Herbert, and he was said to be a landed proprietor, although it struck people that Paul Street was not exactly the place to look for a country gent. As for Mrs. Herbert, no one seemed to know who or what she was, and between ourselves, I fancy that the diverse after her history found themselves in rather strange waters. Of course, they'd both denied knowing anything about the deceased, and in default of any evidence against them, they were discharged. But some very odd things came out about them. Though it was between five and six in the morning when the dead man was discovered, a large crowd had collected, and several of the neighbours ran to see what was going on. They were pretty free with their comments, by all accounts, and from those it appeared that number 20 was in very bad odour in Paul Street. The detectives tried to trace down these rumours to some solid foundation of fact, could get not hold of anything. People shook their heads and raised their eyebrows, and thought the Herberts were rather queer, and I'd rather not be seen going into their house, and so on and so on, but there was nothing tangible. The authorities were morally certain that the man met his death in some way or other in the house, and was thrown out the kitchen door, but they couldn't prove it, and the absence of any indications of violence or poisoning left them helpless. It's an odd case, isn't it? But, curiously enough, there's something more that I haven't told you. I happened to know one of the doctors who was consulted as to the cause of death, and some time after the inquest I met him and asked him about it. You really mean to tell me, I said, that you were baffled by the case, and that you don't actually know what the man died of? Well, pardon me, he replied. I know perfectly well what caused the death. That... Mr. Blank died of fright, of sheer, awful terror. I never saw features so hideously contorted in the entire course of my practice, and I have seen the faces of the whole host of the dead. The doctor was usually a cool customer enough, and, I, and a certain vehemence in his manner struck me, and so I couldn't get anything more out of him. I suppose the Treasury didn't see their way to prosecuting the Herberts for frightening a man to death at any rate. Nothing was done, and the case was dropped. Do you happen to know anything of Mr. Herbert? Well, said Villiers, he was an old college friend of mine. Oh, you don't say. Have you ever seen his wife? Well, no, I haven't. But I've lost sight of Herbert for many years. Oh, it's queer, isn't it? Parting with a man at college gate, seeing nothing of him for years, and then finding him pop his head up in such an odd place. 
But I should like to have seen Mrs. Herbert. People said extraordinary things about her. Oh, really? What sort of things? Well, I hardly know how to tell you. Everyone who saw her at the police court said she was at once the most beautiful woman and the most repulsive thing they'd ever set their eyes on. I've spoken to a man who saw her, and I assure you he positively shuddered as he tried to describe her, but he couldn't tell me why. She seems to have been a sort of enigma, and I expect that if one dead man could have told tales, he would have told some uncommonly queer ones. And there you are again in another puzzle. What could a respectable country gentleman, like Mr. Blank, we'll call him that if you don't mind, want in such a very queer house as number 20? It's altogether a very odd case, isn't it? Oh, it is indeed, Austin. Extraordinary. Well, I didn't think, when I asked you about my old friend, that I should strike on such strange metal. Well, thank you. Anyway, I must be off. Good day. And Villiers went away, thinking of his own conceit of the Chinese boxes. And here was quaint workmanship indeed. And so there we are. That was part two and three of The Great God Pan. Um, the plot thickens. And uh, we will find out in later parts slightly more about Mr Villiers uh, and his investigations into the mysterious Helen. But... Excuse me. At this point, I think it's probably time that we should look a little more into uh, the history of the author, Arthur Macken. Uh, and so, um, let me see. Here we are. He was, uh, he was born Arthur Llewellyn Jones uh, in 1863, uh, in the 3rd of March. His father was a vicar, so they travelled around a lot, but they were um, stayed mainly in Wales. Uh, he didn't have any brothers or sisters, but uh, so he sent uh, quite a, from the, the sound of things, it was quite a lonely childhood. Um, but he said, um, in later on, in, he wrote three autobiographies, short autobiographies, um, and he said that uh, he much preferred it that way, and the, the things he liked to do, which were sort of reading and, and walking uh, and exploring the countryside and that sort of thing, he much preferred to do alone, and that it would have been um, a great horror for him to have lots of uh, brothers and sisters or cousins which he'd have to go and uh, play sport and games and that sort of thing with. He said he much preferred um, living by himself. Uh, and uh, living in uh, well, the area of Wales, which is now um, uh, Monmouthshire, uh, there were lots of um, ancient Roman castles uh, and sort of uh, archaeological sites uh, which he would walk around and explore. Uh, and when he was a kid uh, and coming across these places, uh, he said um, or described it like coming or having a sort of an awful fear and terror of the uh, the weird um, the weirdness of the history and suddenly seeing these these ruined castles where uh, ancient knights or uh, you know dragons or monsters could have lived and uh, he said he in his uh, his writings he always tried to get over that sense of awe and terror uh, of the past coming to life um, as a boy, uh, he was always uh, sort of mysteriously drawn to London. Uh, he didn't visit it uh, until he was about 17 years old, but his father used to get uh, London newspapers, uh, certainly at times of sort of great uh, either national disaster or uh, if there were sort of various uh, you know, uh, important events going on. Uh, and so such a times when the sort of, he remembers the, the fall of Khartoum being announced because the newspaper arrived from London. Uh, and uh, all huddled around reading about the sickness of Edward, the Prince of Wales, who, who recovered and became Edward the Seventh. Uh, and so he became obsessed with the idea of these uh, mysterious London papers and imagining what London must be like. Uh, so much so as a boy, uh, he'd save up his uh, pocket money and would walk the four miles to the nearest railway station where he could buy um, once a week a, a newspaper. It was um, when he was 17 that he took his first trip to London uh, with his father. Uh, and it was a seven or eight hour uh, train ride 
for him coming down from Wales. Uh, but he says he arrived in the evening and they dropped their, their kit off uh, in their hotel, which is just off the Strand. Um, and he says, uh, for the first time I saw the Strand and instantly went to my head and my heart. I've never loved a street in quite the same way. No man has ever seen London, but on that June night in 1880, I was very near to the Theoria, or the, the great vision of London, the city. Uh, and from here on, he was suddenly captivated by this city, and he uh, um, used to love uh, going to the theatre uh, when he could, um, and he thought he was going to be destined for a sort of theatrical life or be a, a theatre manager, but he had absolutely no brain for, um, for, for numbers. Uh, so that sort of constantly eluded him. Um, he didn't have the money, the family didn't have the money to send him off to university. So instead he came uh, back to London uh, and uh, tried to get into medical school, which he also failed at. Uh, and so it was then he decided that he'd turn his hand to um, various jobs, but um, journalism, that was the sort of first... Uh, um, uh, the first sort of uh, uh, career that took his uh, took his fancy, uh, and he ended up becoming very poor indeed, uh, just because there was um, you know never enough. Fame always slightly eluded him uh, in his journalistic work, uh, and after a few years, he describes how London became not this sort of wonderful jeweled toy box but uh, more like a, a goblin city. He didn't have the money to afford to do the things that he wanted to do, uh, and it became a bit of a torment for him. Um, the only thing he could do um, was to walk the city um, at all hours. One of his first homes was a little uh, attic room uh, in Notting Hill Gate, and it was so cold um, that it was often warmer outside than it was inside, and so he would uh, walk the streets of London um, in his overcoat. And he said there's a great bit in one of his autobiographies uh, where he describes how jealous he was of seeing a, a homeless chap who had what he thought was a, a nicer coat and a nicer scarf, and he was this homeless chap was huddled over a, um, a sort of fire in a dustbin, and he thought, God, that guy's so lucky to have a fire and a nice scarf. Um, at the time, he describes how uh, he would walk around London and, and all of a sudden he'd come across a, an impassable street because there was a, a canal in the way. Um, and then whichever way he turned, he'd end up coming back to these, you know, impossible uh, streets he couldn't escape from. Um, one of which they'd always be led to, uh, Kensal Green Cemetery, uh, which he called a terrible city of white gravestone, shattered marble pillars and every set of horrid, horrid heathenry. Uh, it particularly impressed upon him the sort of fear of death. The small village he'd come from uh, in Wales didn't have a cemetery. There was the, the churchyard, obviously, where his father worked with a few gravestones, but he thought they were sort of rather quaint and picturesque. It's not until he came to London, uh, and happening across Kensal Green Cemetery with over 65,000 burials in it that he was suddenly completely overwhelmed uh, by these piles of corpses. Um, his imagination uh, could often sort of get the better of him. He describes himself, um, the good people, among whom I naturally cast myself, feel that everything is miraculous, and I'm constantly amazed at the proportion of all things. The bad people, or scientists as they are sometimes called, maintain that nothing is a source for awe or wonder, because every case can be explained. It's in this way, I think, that we see um, Dr. Raymond as one of those awful scientists who, uh, in the beginning of the story, he's determined to uh, tinker around with our brains uh, and peel back the veil uh, so we can look upon the supernatural, not realising, of course, that uh, the horrors that may be waiting there for us. He's, um, he can see only the scientific progress, and he's looking only for the glory that that might bring him and not thinking of the consequences. Uh, but back to uh, Arthur Macken. Uh, he married um, a young lady called Amelia Hogg in 1887, and uh, she was a, a bohemian type and another sort of theatrical uh, lady who knew everyone worth knowing in London at the time, and uh, particularly the more sort of bohemian and out there. And uh, she introduced Arthur to A.E. Waite, uh, and the two became firm friends. 
uh, A.E. Waite, uh, was an occult author, and again, I think a journalist as well, but um, most famously known for his uh, writings in the occult and the supernatural. And, uh, of course, you may know him uh, because he, um, he lent his work to the, uh, lent his name, I should say, um, uh, to the, uh, the Rider Waite tarot cards, which are the sort of archetypal tarot cards you'll, you'll get today. Um, he was a journalist, uh, on and off, and writing short stories. At this time, I think he, he wrote The Great God Pan, uh, which was his first major success. Um, and it sold well, certainly into two editions at the time. Um, but it was uh, critically destroyed in the press, um, who thought it was just uh, far too ugly and horrible. And they thought the sort of overtly sexual tones there was probably a bit too much for uh, Victorian society at the time. But uh, Macken was very pleased with the, the cruel reviews, who thought it had gone too far. Um, uh, Amelia, Amelia Hogg, his wife, she... Um, passed away 12 years later uh, from cancer and this profoundly affected Macken uh, and it was uh, A.E. Waite, uh, his, his, his friend, who was certainly his guide out of depression uh, at this time. Um, Macken had a number of what he describes as sort of uh, semi-supernatural experiences at this time where he has sort of out-of-body experiences he's walking down the street and suddenly completely overcome with the uh, the scent of incense out of nowhere uh, and he begins to feel like he's not held down by gravity that he's walking on air uh, and uh, he's having these experiences and um, Waite uh, decides to, to introduce him to some of his other friends who uh, were all members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the sort of preeminent Victorian magical secret society at the time, um, which he became a member of. Uh, and obviously that's influenced, um, or his own sort of interest in history and the occult uh, influenced his, um, his writings from there on. And he certainly learned an awful lot more uh, from the members of the Golden Dawn. Um, it was here uh, as well that he started doing some more research onto the legends uh, of King Arthur, uh, of Celtic magic and the, the Holy Grail. It was um, Macken's hypothesis that the legends that we have in our brain of the, of the Grail was a sort of uh, inherent race memory of um, cultic rituals and religious practices. Um, and th this idea that our, our myths and legends are memories of half-forgotten uh, religious practices uh, was an idea that would influence storytellers today, uh, including you know George Lucas and Steven Spielberg with Indiana Jones, certainly with the the Last Crusade and the story of the Grail, uh, and then obviously um, Dan Brown with the uh, Da Vinci Code and some of his other stories there. Um, he did eventually remarry. He had children. Um, his popularity sort of grew and waned over the years. Uh, he ne never managed to quite. Uh, hit the big time like some of his other friends, uh, but he was certainly well respected by uh, authors such as uh, Oscar Wilde, Arthur Conan Doyle, W.B. Yeats uh, were all fans of, of Arthur Mack and W.B. Yeats as well being a, uh, an occultist and, uh, himself and I think uh, another member of the, the Golden Dawn. Uh, the magician Alistair Crowley uh, was a great admirer of Macken's work and he thought it was sort of revealing these great secrets uh, of, of history uh, and the mysteries that are inherent in, um, in our lives. But Macken was never a fan of, uh, of Alistair Crowley's. But it's interesting that in that first chapter we have almost a, a verbatim quote, uh, certainly in, in line with Crowley's thoughts, that every man and every woman is a star. Uh, as well as influencing um, some of the, the writers at the time, he certainly influenced um, uh, the author H.P. Author, uh, Lovecraft with the idea of the sort of ancient gods which come forward into the modern world and the creeping sense of, uh, of fear and terror that slowly unwind in these stories. Um, most importantly, uh, I think certainly for us, um, as we explore London, uh, was the um, Arthur Macken, sorry, yeah, Arthur Macken, um, he was a fan of these uh, wandering through London and allowing himself to get lost and explore uh, the side streets and the highways and uh, how he would write about these experiences he had and how the sense of place and geography would influence people's uh, feelings, emotions and actions and this has led him to be uh, considered one of the sort of um, 
first uh, pioneers of uh, what's known as um, psychogeography, uh, which is a subject written about by all sorts of writers who um, are fascinated by London. Um, I think uh, even um, the comic book um, writer Alan Moore has done a number of um, essays and I think even sort of theatrical um, stage um, shows uh, around Arthur Macken and his um, exploration of London through these sort of midnight wonders. And so there we are. That's Arthur Macken, a short introduction to him uh, as we go through the, uh, the book The Great God Pan. Um, thank you very much for joining me. Hopefully uh, it won't be too long till we can continue um, our stroll through uh, this little gothic horror. Um, at the moment uh, we are going to be starting chapter four uh, next time, uh, which is part four of eight, so we'll be about halfway through. Um, again, if I have the time, I can um, hopefully uh, hopefully be able to pull a couple of chapters together and do slightly longer episodes such as this one. But uh, I've got no idea what I'm doing uh, and uh, whether I'll find the time or not. We're always seem to be too busy nowadays. Um, but again, thank you very much for your patience. Thank you for putting up with my first episode back um, uh, previously. I wasn't going to say yesterday because that was when I did it, but for you, it, you know, God knows when you listened to the last one, even if you have listened to the last one, uh, and to which I'd say, why are you starting sort of halfway through uh, this story? Um, crikey, yes. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, I'm very sorry um, that I don't know what I'm doing as a podcaster and that the uh, last episode was uh, a little bit bizarre. I'm sorry, there. hopefully the, the sound issues have been a little bit uh, easier um, or less obvious uh, this time. And I look forward to seeing you all again soon. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with me, you can find me on Instagram at The Invisible London. Um, I think I'm on Twitter as well. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, until next time... Thank you very much indeed. Good night.